Welcome to the Love and Light Live podcast, empowering crystal lovers and spiritual entrepreneurs to learn and experience the art of crystal healing. Get ready to listen in and join our crystal movement. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for the Love and Light Live podcast brought to you by loveandlightschool.com. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this is the number one place for all things crystals. In today's show, we are going to dive into an interview that I did with the amazing Pam Grossman. Pam is the author of Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. And I am so excited to share this interview with you because I actually picked up Pam's book just a short time before this interview, not even realizing um, that I was going to be having her on the show. And I was so ecstatic when I got to sit down and chat with her because this book, Waking the Witch, is amazing. I mean, it is seriously just very profound so full of important things to know about the feminine and spirituality and how important this is for modern day and Pam is intelligent and witty and humorous and really shines a light on some important subjects so we are going to skip for this week our ask me anything segment as well as our trending this week segment because I want to make sure that you have time to hear Pam's full interview because it is so enlightening and just so full of goodness. Um, So without further commentary from me, I will turn it over to my interview with Pam Grossman. Hello and welcome. I am really excited today to be interviewing Pam Grossman. Pam is author of the book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. And I am so, so excited to be interviewing Pam today. Um, She is also the host of the Witch Wave podcast, which if you are not familiar with that, go over right now, pause this episode, go over, (laughs) check it out, subscribe to that podcast. You will not be disappointed. So, so super good. Um, and I'm just so excited to have her here today. Her writing has appeared in places like the New York Times, Time.com, uh, HuffPo, pretty much everywhere you can imagine. Um, so Pam, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here. I am really excited that we are chatting because just about, I think it was probably about a week and a half ago. Um, As many of you listening know, I actually own a new age shop called Mimosa Books and Gifts uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, and we're always looking for great new books to carry in our store, and I came across Waking the Witch and read the description, immediately fell in love, and was like, this is a book we have to have on the shelves for our customers, and lo and behold, when I was checking my calendar for the week of podcast guests, guess who was here but Pam, so that was like divine timing. (laughs) <laughs> so excited. Um, I'm thrilled to carry your book in the shop. The staff were all like drooling over it when we got it in. So I am just excited to know if you could like tell us a little bit about what this book is all about, Waking the Witch. And like, why did you write this? What was the story behind it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for carrying it in your shop. I am such a proponent of small businesses and indie shops. So of course, 
order the book wherever you can if you can't get it anywhere else but if you can go to a shop like that one please please do um and i'll just show just a brief visual aid um so essentially waking the witch it has a subtitle here, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. And I chose those words with a lot of intention because to me, the archetype of the witch is one that is inherently related to our feelings about, I'll just say feminine power. And um, I should clarify, people of all genders can be witches. And this book is for people of all genders. But it really does trace the history of how witches and women became interlinked. Um, because for most of human history, witches were associated with evil and malevolence. And, you know, starting in around like the 14th and 15th centuries, the devil himself, right? And yet, Today, we have a much more positive association of witches with women um, and with people of all genders. And so I really wanted to not only celebrate the positive aspects of witches, uh, which I think need to be celebrated more, and it's really exciting to see that witches are more popular than ever and are being celebrated, um, but I also wanted to really trace the history and to explore how the ways in in which we, by which I mean society, depicts witches often is a reflection of how that given society or those given people feel about female power. So, you know, spoiler alert, now that feminism is growing and we still have a long way to go, but people have a more positive association with complex, dynamic, powerful women, guess what? Our witches are more positive now. Um, so that's kind of the thesis statement of the book, but it really is fun and it touches on history and pop culture and some of my own um, story as to how I started identifying as a witch. So it's a real amalgam of a lot of things, but all, all around that idea of power, femininity, and magic. But I love this because it doesn't just focus on one thing. I think so many of the books in this area are so focused on just ritual or just magic or just the, this or that. And the thing is that this is so deeply ingrained into all parts of our culture. You can't separate magic or ritual or art or creativity out from any of the other things. They all blend together and, and the lines kind of blur. So I love that you've just looked at this concept and archetype of this energy and taken it to a place where it can be really profoundly thought about and talked about in a way that I think is pretty illuminating. It's, it's very exciting to dive into history, pop culture, all those different things at once and be able to get kind of a broader and deeper understanding for what this concept of a witch really is. So what was kind of your personal journey that led you to realizing that this work needed to be put out there? Yeah, first of all, thank you. That's such a lovely thing to say. Um, and honestly, the points you just brought up are the reasons that I felt compelled to write the book. Because as somebody who not only identifies as a witch, but who's studied specifically the image of the witch in fine art. That's an area of my specialty. Um, but, but as someone who's just very interested in gender and archetypes overall, I was 
hungering for a book that kind of wove it all together. Because to your point, there are so many wonderful books about history. There are so many wonderful books about, um, you know, the witch hunts or Salem, you know, or about Wicca. There, there are all of these different fragments and of course, lots of books about practice and spell books and how-to books, uh, which this book is not. But, you know, I'm someone who not only identifies as a witch for spiritual reasons, but also for, for political reasons. I also happen to love witches in pop culture. Like, I have no problem with, you know, Sabrina and Hermione and even like witches in horror movies, I think, are valuable and have something to teach us. Um, and as I said, I love witches in fine art and I love artists who identify as witches so all of that to me feeds into our notion of what a witch is because our notion of witches evolves over time and it really depends on the context. Um, so, you know, someone like you or myself might talk about witches in a literal sense now, you know, were people who, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll say, I'm Please so, do. <laughs> yeah. so we practice, we have... Uh, we engage in magic. We have a real, I'll call it literal, spiritual engagement with that identity. But then there are a lot of people who are just like really into the movie, The Craft. And I think that has value too. I really do because there are a lot of interesting lessons that The Craft has to teach us about our fear of young women who are coming into their own sexuality and power. So yeah, I really just, um, to, to, long way around answer your question. I wanted to write the book that I wish existed and uh, it didn't exist. And so I had the frankly pretty difficult um, and certainly challenging task of having to write it myself, but it was also such a gift to get to do. Why do you think it is that our societal and cultural perspectives have been changing about the view of the witch? Why is it that we suddenly see the witch as this more positive archetypal image when historically we know that that was not seen in a positive light and it was often something that people were fearful of? Does that have to do or has it been influenced by or has it kind of come along with this rise in feminism? Like where, how does, and I, because obviously as we were just saying, like the lines between these things are obviously blurred. You can't say it's just this one thing or that one thing. But where do you think this kind of comes from, this shift into this more positive viewpoint? I can tell you exactly where it comes from, um, because a lot of that material is covered in the book. And really, we're looking at the 19th century. Um, the, a few different factors are happening during this time. And, and I should say, you know, we're focusing on primarily Europe and the U.S., although certainly witches exist pan-culturally and pan-historically. Um, Essentially, in the 19th century, you had a few things going on. You had scholars who were starting to re-examine a lot of the texts from the witch hunts, both the witch hunting manuals, but also a lot of the confessions of the people who were accused of being witches, who we now know most likely were not witches. It was all, you know, essentially really awful propaganda um, that was birthed out of misogyny and xenophobia and, and a lot of things, which I, I get into in more detail in the book. Um, so that's one piece of it. But a big piece of it too is the burgeoning feminist movement. So 
you know, without going too much into the details, we already had writers in Europe who were starting to do this work, but it got popularized in America thanks to a woman named Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was a suffragist and an abolitionist. And she wrote a book called Woman, Church, and State, where she theorized that witches were in fact the most brilliant women of their age and they were only called witches by the church because the church deemed them a threat. So other people had this theory before her, but she popularizes it in the U.S., specifically via her son-in-law, L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and gave us the notion of good witches and bad witches. Now, I'm really simplifying this. There are a lot of other players in the mix, but that's really a big one. Another big one is a scholar um, later on in the early 20th century named Margaret Murray, who she decides, uh, she's in England, she decides that all of the confessions of the witches should be taken at face value, um, which we now know is not very good scholarship. But she put forth this theory that there was actually centuries and centuries of a lineage of what she called a witch cult. And Hmm. that, you know, these people who were accused during the witch hunts were actually witches. And anyhow, this was debunked for the most part, but not before she started influencing lots and lots of people, including someone named Gerald Gardner, who went on to start the religion of Wicca. So there are real through lines and threads that we can follow and which I try to do in the book that show that you know, so much of our notions of witches, even today for people like me who identify as witches, um, so much of it is kind of this mix of like scholarship and some of it's not great scholarship, but some of it's romantic notions of women and, you know, looking sympathetically at people who absolutely were oppressed by the patriarchy and, you know, really kind of using the witch as a symbol for this usually female rebel who, you know, now we have a lot of sympathy for as we want more powerful, brilliant women. Um, We didn't really value powerful, brilliant women that much before the (laughs) century. I mean, I'm I'm speaking in such grand, you know, broad brush strokes, but, but, but those are some of the players who, who helped to really um, kind of put forth the notion of a good witch or a positive witch. This is really interesting to me because I think, you know, even in the past two decades and even more so in the past decade, I think our perception of which has continued to grow and evolve. It's like happening ever quicker, right? With the amount of information that's available at our fingertips. And I think even when I think back to like 15 years ago, people still associated witch, not necessarily with anything negative, but I think people as like Wicca was starting to kind of come to the forefront and be more recognized, people associated the word witch solely with Wicca for a little while there. And it became something that was like exclusive to that path. But I think that what we've seen and what you've just described really lends a lot of credence to the fact that the term witch has now redefined itself as something much broader. So that kind of takes me into my next question, which is, you know, at face value, someone might pick up your book and think, okay, waking the witch. Well, if I don't necessarily identify as a witch, is this book really for me? But I think with what you've just told us about kind of where we're at with that term and what it really means as this 
strong, powerful, intelligent, often rebellious woman, typically, but not always. Um, this really encompasses, I think, most people that are kind of at the forefront of modern political movements, modern spiritual movements. And we see more and more people taking on this role. So who is this book really for then? Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. Who is this book really for? I'm so happy that you asked that because I had a feeling that people who already identified as witches might dig the book. I mean, I certainly hope so. And this book is absolutely for us. Um, But there are a lot of people who are just interested in gender and they're interested in the ways in which language and symbols change over time and how these symbols hold weight and how they then inform us about the kind of stories that we value and the kind of values that we want to hold forth um, and actualize in our own lives. So, I mean, not to be too pat, but like this book really is for anybody. It's not just for somebody who, you know, practices magic or practices some form of witchcraft. Um, You know, that's going to be, I think, a segment of my readers. But I mean, the, the types of people who are reading it in addition to that are just people who love art, who are interested in feminism, who love movies and TV. I mean, there's a whole you know swath of it and certainly people who are more politically engaged. Um, and you know, that word witch, as I say in the book, it's certainly a word that people like us use to describe you know, ourselves as spiritual beings for sure or magic workers. But a lot of people are using that word witch in a political way too, right? In the same way they might have said like nasty woman as a, <laughs> uh, as like a badge of honor to like take a negative word that was said about women and to like reclaim it and wear it as a badge of honor. And I think that's great too. And I use the word witch about myself in that context sometimes too. So I really think that anybody would hopefully find something valuable from the book. And I think what will be most surprising for people who pick up this book with kind of the preconception that, well, I don't really identify as a witch, but this sounds interesting, probably, especially after listening to this interview, thinking, oh, that that does sound interesting. I want to know more about how that shift happened from, you know, more patriarchal kind of views toward what a witch was to this shift in modern feminism and, and the way that we view this they might pick up this book, read through it and realize, oh my gosh, I'm a witch too. (laughs) I I didn't even know it, but I am. Like, I feel like this is that thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's great. You know, I often say that unlike some other religions, you know, those of us who consider ourselves witches are not trying to convert anyone. We're not trying to proselytize. But hey, if as an added bonus you know, more people feel called and more people feel um, empowered by this concept, like that makes me really happy because I think we need more awake people in general, more people who are, you know, conscious and who believe in their inner power to transform themselves and the world. And whether or not you choose to use the word witch to describe that is certainly up to you. Um, But I think it's a really transformative word in itself. That is so true. And I think especially for people who feel 
a little bit separate, like, and this is totally coming from personal experience here, guys, but like, you know, I don't have any one like organized religion that I feel like I identify with. And I don't necessarily identify with Wicca. I don't necessarily identify with anything that could really have a label. But for some reason, the word witch to me feels safe in that way, because I feel like it's a label for non-labels. Like it just can mean so many things that it can be very personal. So I really like that about it. And the word empowered that you said is the thing that comes through for me, because it's about like you. It's, it's about you as a person, not any one thing that you have to be or have to do or have to act like. Yes, that's exactly right. A lot of people say to me, like, how do you know you're a witch? How do you become a witch? And the secret of it is, yes, there are those of us who might come from a lineage of other people who were considered witches or call themselves witches, who were healers or had some kind of special gifts of sight or you know divination, um, what have you. And I think a lot of us have that in our families, especially if we go back far enough. Um, but you know, I don't consider myself Wiccan, and I think that there are a lot of ways in which our experiences of the divine or the immaterial um, have been trivialized. And if the word witch is a word that you can use, which simply means I honor the mystery, I honor the fact that I don't necessarily no yes of course i i should say i believe in science i believe in medicine i believe in vaccines all of that <laughs> i do it's very important to say especially uh right now but um all of that said you know i do think that honoring our spiritual lives is deeply important and deeply um, it has a potent energy to it when you decide. And the other thing with witches, as I was starting to say, is like, there's no one path. There's no one book to read. There's no Pope of witchcraft, as a lot of us are fond of saying. <laughs> you know, um, certainly some of us do go through initiations. Not everybody does. Like, I have a lot of friends who are coming from African diaspora religions and traditions or indigenous traditions who call themselves witches now. So it really is a word that is a wide umbrella and that can be interpreted in all sorts of ways that to your point are very, very personal. And yet there's some kind of like connective tissue between all of us who choose to use that word. Like, like, there's just some kind of kindred spiritness that I know that when I call myself a witch, and if you call yourself a witch, there's a good chance that we're sharing some kind of perspective on how the world or how the universe works, you know? And one of the best parts of it is, is that it is pan-gendered, it is pan-cultural, and that it is something that is unifying and that connects people and, and people come together. Like you kept saying, like one of us, like like that's what it is. And I think that there is this movement toward more awakened people wanting to be part of that movement. And that's why it has infiltrated pop culture and politics. And it's not just confined to spirituality. You know, it really permeates kind of everything because it's more of a way of being. It's a way of living your life and the set of values that you hold as a person. And 
Um, it's just a beautiful thing. So, okay, one last thing, because we always have to talk a little bit about crystals. Yes. Um, and I know that you said you have crystals on your altar and on your desk, and you use them kind of intentionally, depending on what you're doing or what you're manifesting. Would you say in your experience, are there any crystals that would kind of support this awakening or opening to the idea of embracing that witch archetype in yourself? Oh my goodness. Like what would be a crystal to support you that way? Oh my goodness. I feel like all of them would. (laughs) Um, Honestly, like just using crystals will probably support you. You know what? The one that's coming to mind is one that I have in my Bert, my, my eye view right now, which I'll grab. Um, and I'm bringing this one up because I have a little story about it. This is lapis lazuli. Some people call it lapis lazuli, depending. I don't know what your preferred uh, pronunciation is. There are so many. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a beautiful blue stone. And um, it's really great for communication, for finding your words And I think in this day and age, finding our words and finding our voice is so important. Um, For such a long time, you know, I was what's called a solitary practitioner. I was just practicing by myself. And there are some of you who are watching this or hearing this now who might never choose to share the witch side of you publicly. And that's fine. You know, absolutely. If you want to keep this just solo or you just have to because there isn't anyone else around for you to practice with, that's totally fine. Um, But there is an aspect of the witch archetype that I love in that, yes, she's solitary sometimes, but she also can be in a coven and join with other kindred spirits. And um, for me, this stone really helps me in those scenarios when I'm meeting with other kindred people like all of you. And I want to find the right words to make sure that my intentions inside are coming out. And, and also we know that words are magic. I mean, think of spells and all the magic words and, and the magic of writing. Um, so this is a stone I worked with a lot when I was writing the book. And, and I think everybody could probably benefit from more lapis lazuli in their lives. Now, because you have this experience of having had written the book, um, obviously that, that takes a great deal of creativity, right? Like I've written a few books. I know like how much you really have to be kind of tapped into that. So in in your opinion, how are magic and creativity really intertwined? Or at least how did that kind of um, come through in your own life, in your own journey? I think they're deeply related because both of them involve having a vision or an intention that you are then trying to manifest and, you know, bring life to. Um, So is all creativity magic? You know, I'm not sure, but I am sure that creativity with intention and a ritualized mindset is magic. And there, there is a difference between sitting and writing a poem and sitting down and beforehand, like lighting a candle and then writing that poem or casting circle or intentionally having a stone beside you, just entering in a kind of different frequency or, or different like level of consciousness that is a deeply magical transformational space. And so when I was writing this book, I was working very actively and I still am as I talk about the book actively to work with, you know, spirit, capital S to, make sure that 
it's this book is not just about me and my ego, but that there is a bigger message that I am letting myself be a conduit for. And it's not just passive, you know, there's a relationship there. That's why it's a craft, right? That's why it's witchcraft. That's why craft is what we do to our art. Um, and with our art. So I think that it's a really useful way of looking at creativity, that it is magic if if you approach it with this magical intent. And I think your work will be different. Mine certainly is, for sure. The amount of candles and altars and rituals and things that I was doing throughout writing this book um, I think make it a different book than if I were not to have been, you know, engaging in my magic while I was doing it. So I'm yeah. so glad you said that. Like I just look at the difference between my first book and second book. So my second book was all is all about, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, um, crystals and lunar energy and really working with the moon. And it's really ritual based, but it's like, easy rituals that anyone can do, although you could make them more elaborate. And so for me, that book is so different than just like the, here's the A to Z of what crystals do, you know, like (laughs) it, because of that point of co-creation that you were kind of saying, it is a craft. It's something that you're actively doing. It's not passive. You're not just sitting back and watching this thing happen or unfold, but you're really taking part in something greater in that form of creativity. And I just think no matter what you do, like you said, whether it's writing and journaling or if it's art, physical art, painting, no matter what it is that you do to be creative and feel creative and express that creativity, magic can absolutely take a part in that. And I just so appreciate that perspective. Thank you. And, and I like to remind people and also myself, like creativity doesn't just have to be art, right? Like I know accountants who are creative. I know small business owners and, you know, lawyers, like whatever your vocation is or your day job is, there's a space there for you to infuse it with more intention and magic and to bring it to a higher level of service um, and of generative energy that hopefully makes the world a better place, which is ultimately what it's all about, in my opinion. Absolutely. Pam, thank you so much for being here. This has been so enlightening. I'm wondering if you can tell everybody where they can find the book and how they can stay in touch with you online and through social media. Absolutely. So the book right now can be found everywhere, pretty much in the US and in the UK, all the usual websites, certainly all the usual bookshops. And of course, the small bookshops, please, please support them. Um, And if they don't have it in a local bookshop, please ask them to order it because they would be so happy to do it. And I would be so happy to have the book uh, spreading its wings. Um, Beyond that, it's coming out in a few other languages. More info on that soon. I think it's coming out in German. Gosh, well, probably not relevant to this audience, but uh, in, I think it's late September and Spanish language after that and so on. So hopefully it has a a bigger life to come. Exciting. Um, It is exciting. Um, Beyond that, you know, honestly, all my socials, everything, if you want to know about my events, because I'm always bopping around doing, you know, workshops and presentations and talks and readings and all of that, um, just go to my website, pamgrossman.com. And you'll also see my social medias there. I have kind of a funny handle, which is phantasmophile, uh, which is based on a blog that I've been running since Oh my God, forever. I mean, I think it's been since like 2003 or something like that. 
Um, so maybe 2005, it doesn't matter. Point being, find me. I would love to hear from you and we can make some magic together. And of course, also be sure to check out Which Wave Podcast. You'll want to check that out in whatever your podcast streaming app is because it is phenomenal. So again, Pam Grossman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Be well. Pam is always such a delight. So I really hope that you enjoyed listening to that interview and learning a little bit more about her book, Waking the Witch. And of course, be sure to go and grab your own copy. We have a link to Pam's book over on the blog. So I hope that you got a lot of value in today's show and that you enjoyed this episode. If you want more information on anything that Pam and I discussed in this interview, you can learn more over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. And of course, if you did enjoy the show today, the biggest compliment you can give me is to leave a quick rating and review over at loveandlightschool.com slash listen. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe through that link as well so you never miss a future episode. So I'd like to give a special shout out to Ada Lorena. And Ada says, loving Crystal Live. I'm beyond grateful that I found your podcast. I'm really enjoying every episode. Just recently started to get a call to learn more about crystal healing and your podcast is perfect. Your voice is very soothing and the volume's great too. Looking forward to learning more. Ada, thank you so much for that beautiful five-star review. I am very grateful for you as a listener and I really appreciate you taking the time to leave a review over on iTunes. So if you'd like to leave your own review, I'll give you my crystal chakra healing step-by-step class as a free gift. So once you've posted your review, just take a quick screenshot of it and send it over to me by email at support at love and light healingschool.com. My team and I will get your class all set up and we'll reply back with details about how you can get started. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Love and Light Live podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and I'll be back with you in our next episode. Until then, crystal blessings. The Love and Light Live podcast is a production of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Visit us online at loveandlightschool.com.